Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gehanna, Ohio, and we exist to help people find and follow God. To find out more about our church, to join a group, or to give online, visit threecreekschurch.com. In this series, we're diving into the story of Esther. Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the name of God isn't written. But the power of God, the presence of God, and the providence of God are clearly on display. Thanks for tuning in to Providence, the story of Esther. Well, again, good morning, Three Creeks. Really, really excited to be here today. Just a little kind of exciting tidbit, actually. Uh, Morgan, who was just actually up on this stage, she actually led me to Christ last week. Uh, that's, that's a joke. Isn't that kind of ridiculous, though? Like, the number of people that are sitting in this community as a result of this, I, I feel like we should just say, bravo, thank you for putting yourself out there and just inviting people. Literally, the number one reason people don't come to a church is because they were never invited. And so thank you, Morgan, honestly, for taking that challenge uh, seriously. Uh, I really have been looking forward to today. I, I am not just saying that. Very, very much been looking forward to being down here. My family and I have been uh, cheering this church on from afar for almost four years now, and it's kind of ridiculous, actually. Joel and I were joking around this week, and it's like, how has it taken four years uh, to get you down here and, and speak? And so it really is a, a privilege. Uh, Three Creeks actually launched exactly five weeks after uh, the church that my wife and I and a team of people got started up in Michigan, just beautiful Michigan, where our football is terrible and where all of you come for vacation. So you can't totally say disparaging things about uh, the state of Michigan. Uh, but anyway, yeah, exactly five weeks uh, after we launched the church that I have the privilege of pastoring, uh, you know, Three Creeks got off the ground. And basically ever since I met Joel, he's just been, kind of been perpetually living in my shadow. Uh, I'm not sure... Uh, if Joel has actually uh, ever shared this with you guys before, uh, we actually made a pact in college that we said uh, we, we said we were never going to work for a church, and like we were dead serious, like we're never going to work for a church. Like let's make this a reality. And I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but I think it probably came from a place that him and I had always been a part of the local church, and we're like, man, Christians can just be like super annoying. And uh, I don't know if I want to be a part of that, uh, but God kind of has, has a sense of humor in that way. Uh, he has a way of humbling us and getting us to do things that we maybe initially did not sign up for. And so it's kind of crazy that here we are all these years later uh, and are actually pastoring churches and, you know, have started churches. Uh, as I prepared this message, um, I, I had all these, these stories like circling around in my head about Joel and I thought this would be really funny. Like, I, I'm going to have this opportunity to get in front of his church and tell this story that's like maybe kind of embarrassing. But as I was reflecting back on those stories, most of them from college, I was like, if I tell any of those, they're equally, if not more embarrassing to me. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, I thought I would actually maybe, rather than putting Joel through the stress of like, what am I going to say next? Uh, I'd share something a little bit more heartfelt. I've gotten a little bit soft here in my old age. Uh, when I reflect back on my, uh, my 34 years of life, and I think about uh, why it is that I follow Jesus and uh, why it is now that, that I've given my life to, to telling people about the hope that we find in Jesus. Uh, there is no greater single factor. You see that? I mean, that was like, whoo, like right at the moment. Uh, there is no greater single factor to point to in my life than, than Joel Trainer. Uh, I, I really do mean that. Uh, at, at a time uh, in my life when I was making a lot of less than intelligent decisions, Joel saw something in me that I certainly did not see in myself. He pursued a relationship with me that, for honestly, for reasons that are still maybe a little bit hazy, a little bit unclear. In fact, after uh, this one occasion where I had done something to Joel that he didn't really appreciate, he came up and he shoved me in the chest, the angriest I've ever seen him. And he said, it's dangerous to be your friend. Uh, he wasn't wrong, actually, when he said that. 
um, but he never gave up on me. He never stopped trying to hold me accountable. And, and most importantly, he never stopped showing me uh, what it looks like to truly pursue Jesus. And because of your pastor's influence on my life, not just my life, not just my family's life, uh, but now literally there's an entire church community that is being impacted for Christ literally because of what Joel Trainer has done for my life. I'm not just saying that for hyperbole. Uh, Grumlaw, the church I pastor, does not exist uh, without Joel Trainer uh, in my life. That's, that's pretty good, right? Uh, and I tell you that to just say, like, you all really could not be in better hands. Joel is really one of those uh, really special people that can look at others with full integrity and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, today, uh, as already alluded to, I have the privilege of wrapping up a series y'all that y'all have been in now for about a, a month. This is the fourth and, and final week, a series titled, as you can see up there, Providence, uh, where we're taking a journey through a book that we find in the Old Testament, kind of that first half of the Bible titled Esther. Uh, and in the book of Esther, we learn all about the life of a person who goes by the name of Esther. Esther. Like some of you are like, I don't want to yell out loud in church if I get it wrong, I can't ever come back, right? But uh, Esther, uh, yeah, the, the, they weren't very creative when it came to naming uh, in, in the Bible. And as the title of the series would suggest to you, and as we've explored at length here over these last three weeks, uh, there's a big old difference between coincidence and providence. Providence, as Joel has reminded us, is the protective care and the guidance of God. See, God is more involved in the details of our lives than any of us realize. But, but so often, we just chalk it up to like, wow, like what, a, what a wild set of coincidences, when in reality, it is God's divine providence at work. In fact, this entire story that we find in the book of Esther is a testament to that fact. Now, what's really, really ironic about the book of Esther, and as Joel has already pointed out to us, God is never actually mentioned a single time in this entire book. We go 10 straight chapters of content, and God doesn't even get so much as a shout out. But it's not an accident. It's incredibly intentional. It's the writer of this book saying, hey, there's no need to even mention God because his fingerprints are so clearly all over this. You can't see God's name in it, but you can't deny God's hand in it. It's an invitation to read this account and look for God's activity because it would be ridiculous. No sane person could possibly read through the book of Esther and think to themselves like, wow, what a, what a crazy set of coincidences. In fact, if you're sitting here today and you're skeptical of this whole Christianity thing, you're skeptical about following Jesus, I'm telling you, you have to read the book of Esther. It was several years ago. Uh, I got a phone call from a friend. At the time, he was serving as a, as a full-time missionary down in, in Guatemala, and my phone rings, and it, it never appeared like as like his caller ID, because he was always calling from like these random burner numbers, but you just knew it was him. I don't know if any of you have had friends in like foreign countries, but it's always like way too many numbers, and you think it's okay. This is either the prince of Nigeria trying to get some money from me, or, or maybe it's my friend in Guatemala. So I'd usually answer and be like, hey, what's up? And, uh, and he's like, hey, it's Lance. He's like, I got to tell you the, the craziest story that just happened. And he went on to tell me uh, he was working for an organization called Pray America in Guatemala. And uh, when he was down there, like shortly after he had came on staff, their water pressure started getting like really, really, really low, uh, like, like really low. And so that they're like, what's going on? And what they kind of feared was the well that, that at the property was probably running dry. And so eventually they call the professionals and they kind of delayed and procrastinated because it's a pretty expensive venture if they needed to dig for a new well. 
Uh, and as they feared, it was exactly as they had predicted, like the wells were, were definitely running dry. And so they bring out the professionals, the surveys, the people that are going to measure everything, and they say, okay, here's the deal. We are going to be able to find another well on your property, but, but we're, we're probably going to find it somewhere between 900 and 1,200 feet, which, I don't know, that just blows my mind that somebody can dig a 900-foot hole. Okay, so 900, 1,200 feet, and it's going to cost about $90,000. Now, uh, I'm guessing $90,000 is probably a lot of money for anybody in this room, but $90,000 when you are working in a third world country for a mission organization is like a lot, a lot of money. So, so the director, Ron, uh, he decides, okay, my, my best time is probably spent coming back to America uh, and going around and trying to fundraise for this new well. Obviously, we need running water here at, at Pray America. And so he comes back, and he gets to the first couple of churches, and he's not really making a lot of headway. There haven't been a lot of financial commitments. He has, he's at his third stop. And, and after his little presentation, he's you know, showing maps of the grounds and everything, and you, you know, showing them the need, this guy comes forward, and he will admit that, that he thought, it was like, finally, somebody's going to come here and hand me a pretty fat check. But, but the guy almost straight away, he's like, hey, just to let you know, I, I don't have any money to give you. And he's like, awesome. That, that has been kind of the theme here at, at these first stops. And he's like, but, but while you were talking, the Holy Spirit audibly spoke to me. And he's like, okay. And he's like, hey, can you pull back out the map of the property? And so he's like, yeah. And so he rolls back out the map. And he said, the Holy Spirit told me clear as day, you're going to find water right here. And he pointed at the map. And he said, you're going to find it at 32 feet. And Ron again admits that he was like, okay, that's cool, that, that sounds awesome, but it didn't really prompt any action on his part. So another two churches later, same kind of deal, he's not raising very much money, and he's afterwards chatting with a guy that he had known for years and years and years, and he's recounting this story of the guy coming and pointing at the map and saying, hey, you're going to find water right here at 32 feet. And his buddy gets a grin on his face, and he says, hypothetically, if you were to actually find water there, how much money would it cost to dig a 32-foot well? And Ron's like laughing. He's like, I don't know. Like, I mean, 32 feet, we wouldn't even have to hire a company. We could use our own employees. I, I think it would cost like $300. And the guy grins and he reaches into his pocket. He goes, the Holy Spirit told me to give you all the money in my pocket today. But, but I, I didn't really even want to admit that because I know there's not very much money in my pocket. And so he reaches in and he hands him three crisp $100 bills. He says, here's 300 bucks. And Ron, he's like, okay, kind of crazy. It's kind of ridiculous what God has to do sometimes to grab our attention. He still does nothing with this. He has 300 bucks in his pocket. He has these couple of instances. And now he's back in Guatemala. And the very first short-term mission team that comes down, he's again, he's presenting to this need to them on the very first night, explaining that, hey, the reason the water pressure is so bad in the showers and the kitchens, wherever, is because we need to dig this new well. It's going to cost us money. Would you prayerfully consider, you know, giving to this? And afterwards, this young woman comes up to him, and she's like in tears. She goes, the Holy Spirit has never spoken audibly to me before, but, but he was nagging the entire time you were presenting to the point where I almost couldn't even hear what you were saying. And the entire thing, time, all he was saying to me was yellow flower, yellow flower, yellow flower, yellow flower, like on repeat. And Ron's like, okay. And she's like, so, so what does that mean? And he's like, I don't know. Like, we're in Guatemala. Look around. Like, there are yellow flowers everywhere. Like, I have no idea what that means. You need to go back to God and ask for a little bit more clarity. And so that night, she goes to sleep. She can't really sleep. She's wrestling the whole time. She said she stayed up most of the night just praying, God, please give me clarity. Please give me clarity. What does yellow flower mean? And the next morning, she finally gets out of bed, and she's brushing her teeth in the dormitory, looking out onto the grounds, these beautiful grounds again in Guatemala, 
brushing your teeth, and out in the middle of this grassy field, there's a singular yellow flower right in the middle of the field, and she loses it, and she gets dressed, finishes brushing her teeth, goes and, and finds Ron. She's like, I know what it means. I know what it means. And she, she takes him to this yellow flower in the middle of the field, and now Ron starts crying. He goes, you have no idea that this happened, but about six weeks ago, I was back in America, and a guy pointed to a map and said, we were going to find water at 32 feet, and this is the exact same spot. And so he, of course, goes and gets his guys, and they start digging a hole, right? And at 28 feet, Lance, my buddy, and Ron, the director, are looking down into the hole, and the guys have water up to their knees. And they're like, do we stop? And they're like, no, keep going. They said 32 feet. Go to 32 feet. And they dug four more feet, and at 32 feet, there was water pouring in from four different directions. They had found their well, not at 1,000 feet, not at 1,200 feet, but at 32 feet, and it cost them a whopping $300. And as my buddy Lance is looking down into the hole like he had never seen a miracle like this in his life, he's just sitting there absolutely blown away. Ron looks at him, slaps him in the chest, and says, crazy, huh? And walks away. And I don't know about you, but when I hear stories like that, it's sort of like God's hand can't be forced, and his will can't be stopped. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it here in just a bit. But right now, what we're actually going to do, just to kind of tie a bow on this series, we're going to rip through this entire story of Esther, kind of Reader's Digest type version. I always say that, Reader's Digest. I don't even know what the Reader's Digest is. Like my parents say that. I'm just carrying on the tradition. But anyway, we're going to read through, give a quick recap of the story of Esther, hopefully tie a nice little bow on this thing. But for those of you who maybe haven't been here for the entirety of this series, I want to give you a little context as to what we're stepping into as we explore in the book of Esther. When we jump in here, it's about 100 years post the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people from Jerusalem. The Babylonians, when they would take over an empire, when they would take over a nation, that they kind of had this nasty habit where they wouldn't allow the people to continue to dwell what had always been home. And it was their, this way of indoctrinating all things Babylonian to those people. They would remove them from what was comfortable, and they would take them with them to their native land so those people would essentially become Babylonians. But now we're 100 years post that Babylonian exile, and oh, how the might have fallen. Because no longer are the Babylonians the most powerful empire in the world. The Persians have actually taken them over. And when the Persians came into power, they were like, that's kind of weird that the Babylonians did that. I mean, you want to stay here and keep living amongst us, that's fine. But if you want to return to your homeland, to your native land, uh, more power to you. So most of the Jewish people ended up returning to Jerusalem, but there was this small remnant that decided to stay, and most of them settled in the capital city of Persia, a place called Susa. Now, the king of Persia is a person I know that you guys have explored a little bit already in this series. Uh, he's a guy by the name of Xerxes. And almost immediately, when you begin reading here in Esther's account, almost immediately, one of the things you pick up on is uh, Xerxes, he liked to do a little bit of drinking. And uh, when, when Xerxes would start drinking, he would often make some pretty terrible decisions. Any of you know anybody like that? Go ahead and point them out real quick. Just kidding. That's, don't do that in church. It's a bad idea. So in the very first chapter of this book, Xerxes, he throws this huge party, and he invites all these nobles, all these officials, and there it says that the celebration lasted 180 days. It was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. Again, they, they like to do a little bit of partying. Now, now when it is him and his buddies, that they get pretty drunk. 
that they get this idea, and we all know that wonderful ideas are born out of drunkenness. He's a king, and so naturally he has a queen, and he decides to call for his queen. He says, hey, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Now, what we read right here is exactly what it sounds like. He's drunk, his buddies are drunk, and he's sitting around, he's like, my wife is so good looking. You gotta lay eyes on this woman. He's like, calls her, he's like, come out here, do a twirl. Let everybody see the other side. This is gonna be great. Like, come on out here. And she's like, I'm not doing that. Are you out of your mind? I'm not gonna embarrass myself. And he's like, no, seriously, come out. And, and, and she refuses to come. Now, what I find to be at least a little bit humorous here is that this kind of junk happens all the time some 2,000 years later. It's like the husband, the boyfriend, the fiance, he's had a little bit too much to drink. He tries to get his wife, his fiance, the girlfriend to do something. And she's like, no, stone cold sober. She's like, I- I'm not going to do that. But yet the guy gets mad. We're, we're all these years later and we're still struggling with the exact same stuff. But anyway, as it says here, Xerxes is mad and he's still intoxicated. And so him and his buddies, they compound this already pretty terrible decision. They're all sitting around, they're all drunk, and they're asking themselves, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about your queen? Can you even believe that she was this disobedient? And one of his dumb friends pipes up with this. He says, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and every citizen throughout your empire. And again, no one's like, well, I don't know. That seems like maybe just like a hair of a stretch. And he continues, women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Again, not one of them is like, hey, you know what? I, I don't think that's going to happen. Like that just seems like we're taking this to another level. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and media will hear queen did, and they'll start treating their husbands the exact same way. There will be no end to their contempt and to their anger. Now, again, this seems like a a bit of a jump, maybe a jump to a conclusion, Matt, a little bit here, but Xerxes, he's sort of an idiot and and also intoxicated, so he actually agrees with this advice, and and he banishes Queen Vashti. He's like, you are not the queen anymore. But but guess what happens when he uh, sobers up? He, He wises up. It says, after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. In other words, he regrets it. He's like, why in the world did I do that? And so his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. They're going, obviously, you're not going to apologize. I mean, God forbid that, and you know, just invite her back. So how about instead, we we get all these people who work for you. They're going to go all throughout the kingdom. They're going to find the most attractive young woman, and then you get to pick whatever one you want to be your next queen. It's like bachelor circa 480 BC. And and here is where we're introduced right about this time to, to Esther, as well as her uncle Mordecai. They were that part of that small remnant of Jewish exiles that had stayed back and decided to live in that capital city of Susa. Now, now Mordecai, he hears about this search, and he goes to, to Esther, and he's like, hey, you ought to throw your hat in the ring. But if you do this, make sure that you keep your nationality a secret. Do not tell people that you are Jewish. See, see the Persians, they didn't mind the Jewish people living amongst them. But, but, but to allow a, a Jewish person, a foreigner, to actually become the queen, that would have been absolutely unheard of. It continues, it says, Esther 
was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and he declared her queen instead of Vashti. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. Now, y'all, I'm telling you, we cannot totally appreciate how big of a deal this is. But, but take my word for it, this is absolutely insane that a Jewish woman, a foreigner, ha- has just become the queen in what is one of the most powerful nations in the entire world, and nobody knows about it except for her uncle Mordecai. Now, now shortly after uh, Esther becomes queen, her uncle Mordecai, he, he, he's working, and his, his, his job happens to be guarding the palace gates. And, and he happens to overhear this plot these two men talking about this plot to assassinate the king. And it says, but Mordecai, he heard about the plot and he gave the information to Queen Esther. She she then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. So, So now, not only is Esther the queen, a Jewish woman, but her uncle, a Jewish man, has now found himself in the very good graces of the king. Tuck that away here for just a second. But in the next chapter, we're informed and we're introduced to another guy by the name of Haman. He, he is second in command. The only person more powerful than him is Xerxes. And Haman, uh, he's a guy who, who's pretty full of himself. He has a whole lot of pride in his life. And because Xerxes actually likes him, a, a decree is made that whenever Haman walks by you, Whenever he passes you by, you need to bow down low as a sign of respect to Haman. But naturally, there were some people that didn't really want to go for this, namely Mordecai, because he worships the one, the true God. And he's like, I'm not bowing down to Haman. Not a chance I'm doing that. And this, of course, really angers very prideful Haman. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it wasn't enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So so what he does is he goes to Xerxes and he paints this picture that the Jewish people are a bunch of troublemakers. And he's like, I don't know if you've noticed, they are really good at making babies. I mean, they are multiplying like gangbusters around here. And before we know it, they're going to rise up. They're going to be the most powerful people. They're going to take over this kingdom. Have you read the history books about the Jewish people? We need to do something about them. We we, got to run some population control on the Jewish people. And and so he convinces Xerxes to issue a decree that it's going to allow all of the Jewish people to be killed on a single day, about a year from that day when he signed the decree. So Xerxes, he signs it, no problem, not realizing, obviously, that he has just signed the death warrant for, for his queen, for his wife, not realizing that she is obviously Jewish. Now, now Mordecai, he, he eventually sees the decree, and, and he's distraught, while at the same time kind of feeling this weight on his shoulders of like, oh my goodness, because I would not bow down to Haman, I am going to be responsible for the deaths of many, many people, people obviously that I care about. And so he goes to Esther, and he reminds her, he's like, hey, just in case you forgot, you're Jewish. And when this decree comes to pass, you're not going to be saved from this. You're going to be in trouble. So you should probably try and intervene. He actually says, don't think for a moment. Go back one, maybe. All right, maybe we don't got that. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some 
other place, but you and your relatives will die. And he goes on to utter these now rather famous words. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. In other words, he's going, don't you think that God has this all under control? Don't you think that, that he has this all perfectly orchestrated for his purpose? He, he doesn't need you, Esther, but he would like to use you. And, and so Esther, she takes this challenge seriously, and she comes up with this plan. She's like, all right, I'm going to invite the king, and, and I'm going to invite Haman for dinner, and maybe if the opportunity presents itself, I, I'm going to speak up and, and defend my people. But it doesn't come up at that first meal and so Haman, he leaves. He's pretty excited. He just got to have like a, a one-on-two meal with the king and the queen. But as he leaves, of course, he sees Mordecai sitting at the gate. And he's reminded of how much he loathes this guy, that even though now this edict has been declared, he's still not bowing down to him. He, he's still not showing any fear whatsoever. So he goes on this high from just having a meal with the king and the queen to back down to this low. And so he goes walking through the front door of his house, and his wife is expecting to find him, of course, in very good spirits, but instead he's a grump, and she's like, what's wrong? He's like, stinking Mordecai still won't bow down to me. And the wife throws out this very beautiful piece of sound advice. She says, set up, set up a sharpened pole that stands 70 feet tall, and in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. This pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. Okay, so she's like, listen, I mean, I know you're going to get to kill all of them in about a year from now. Why, why would you wait? If you go and ask the king, he's your buddy. He's going to allow you to kill just one Jewish man. That shouldn't be that ridiculous of a request. But that night, Xerxes, he can't sleep. And because back in history, we, we didn't have, you know, televisions. He didn't have like a phone to just aimlessly scroll through. He, he calls for one of his attendants. And he says, why don't you read me a story? But not just any story. I, I want you to read to me the history of my reign. And it just so happens that the spot that that attendant flips to is this, is this account where there was this Jewish guy hanging out at the gate by the name of Mordecai, who just so happened to hear about this plot to overthrow his king and assassinate him. And, and then he told the information to Esther. Esther relays it to him and ended up saving his life. And he gets to thinking to himself, well, what reward, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? That seems like a big deal. I mean, the guy saved my life. Like, we, we should probably give him like a Chipotle gift card or something. And the, the, his attendants replied, nothing, nothing has been done for him. Interesting, he thinks. Like, we, we, we ought to do something for the guy who saved my life. And wouldn't you know it, just in that moment, who comes walking through the door? Haman, with the request to kill Mordecai right on the tip of his tongue. But before he can even get a word out, Xerxes asks him the question, what should I do? What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Now again, Haman, pretty prideful guy. He just assumes that clearly Xerxes must be talking about him. It doesn't even cross his mind that maybe Xerxes could be talking about a different person. So, so he goes on and on and on talking about, hey, you should put the royal clothes on him. You should throw him up on your royal horse. You should have somebody trot him all around the city declaring, hey, this is what the king does for those who honor him. Thinking, hey, this is going to be pretty great when this comes to pass and I get to ride around on the king's royal horse. Excellent. Excellent. The king said to Haman, quick, take the robes and my horse. 
Do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew, wah, wah, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing that you have suggested. As some of you know, this story actually gets better. So now Haman is forced to trot around the guy that he loathes most in this world, declaring to the community, this is what the king does for those who honor him. I have to imagine it was like the most half-hearted display that you've ever seen in your life. Now, shortly thereafter, Esther invites Haman and the king again to a second meal, praying and hoping that she's going to get this opportunity to intervene for the Jewish people. And at a certain point in the meal, she finally sneaks it in. She says, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. Now, you have to remember, the king at this point, he has not any knowledge whatsoever that that his queen is a Jew. So as she is uttering these words, I mean, his mind is racing a million miles an hour. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. He's finally putting together, oh my gosh, you're Jewish? Oh my goodness, I signed what? All these people are going to be killed? Why would I do that? And he's trying to remember, who put me up to this? Who told me to sign this ridiculous decree? In fact, he says, who, who would do such a thing? He says, who would do such a thing? And I just want you to imagine, this is like the climax of the movie if this was ever made into a film. She's sitting there. The king has just asked that, that very important question, who would do such a thing? Who would put me up to this? And she slowly but surely turns her head and makes eye contact with her adversary. He, he becomes pale with fright, and she looks at him, perhaps smirks, and says, hey, man. It's a church joke. This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. He knew that his days were numbered. And then one of the servants just happens to throw in this little tidbit. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Hey, by the way, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard, because apparently that was normal. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the the man, just in case you're wondering, who did, after all, save your life. And I have to think he's over there. He's like, shut up, like, be quiet. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Shortly after this, a decree is issued that that saves the Jewish people from annihilation. Esther gets a book in the Bible named after her, and everybody lives happily ever after. Now, Now, come on. If you've ever read that account for yourself, maybe this is your first time hearing it, Wouldn't it be kind of ridiculous to sit here and think to yourself, like, wow, that is just like a wild set of coincidences that are happening right here? Or or would it actually be more reasonable to think, good grief, what a testament to God's divine providence? I I don't know about you, but, but when I read this account, I think it's pretty hard to deny that that God's hand can't be forced and and his will can't be stopped. Three Creeks, the same God who is at work in the lives of Esther, who who is at work in, in the lives of Mordecai, is the same God who is sitting on the throne today. The same God that rose Jesus from the grave, 
that the same God who gives you the opportunity to be made right with him by simply placing your faith in him is the same God who still reigns. That the same God who, who left his life-altering, eternity-transforming message in the bunch of no-name carpenters and tradesmen and tax collectors and fishermen, that same God is the same God who is behind this church community right here in Gahanna, Ohio. And here is what I am positive of. Even if Esther does nothing to save her people, she never speaks up, she never arranges those meals, God would have found another way. He would have found another way to intervene. He would have found someone else because his hand can't be forced and his will cannot be stopped. Even if every single one of Jesus' disciples would have quit would have headed for the hills after Jesus went back up into heaven and, and everybody around would have looked and said, oh my goodness, look at how you wasted your time with those 12 people. God would have found someone else. He would have found another way because his hand can't be forced and his will can't be stopped. All throughout history, read this stuff for yourself. Followers of Jesus have faced massive persecution, all the odds stacked against them. I'm telling you, if you are skeptical of Christianity, you have to read about that early first century church. It should have never, never survived the first century. All throughout history, society seems like it is heading in a complete different direction. This current moment in time notwithstanding, but yet still this movement that we call the local church Christianity, it lives on because God's hand can't be forced and his will cannot be stopped. Here's sort of a sobering reality. Um, God doesn't need any of us. None of us bring anything to the table where God thinks to himself like, oh my goodness, thank God for Shay today. I mean, thank, thank me for Shay today. I mean, without him, I, I would have been in a lot of trouble. He's God. But, and if you're on the fence about this whole following Jesus thing, I feel like this alone should be enough to tip you over the edge. He longs, he longs to use you. And not like you in broad terms, but specifically you. Just like Esther, he has a purpose. He has a plan for your life. He, he thinks that highly of you. He, he loves you that much. He, he wants to use you in ways that you have never even dreamt of. Just like Esther, just like Mordecai, just, just like Ron at Pray America, just like knuckleheads like Joel and myself. And come on, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to get on board with that? In fact, just think about it logically for a second. It's just kind of the smart decision because after all, God's hand can't be forced and his will cannot be stopped. I'll speak for myself. I don't want to be on the other side of that. I don't even want to be sitting idly by on the sidelines. I want to play a part in what God is doing in this world. 
something that he has invited every single one of us into. I want to be used as an instrument for that hand that can't be forced and involved in that will that can't be stopped. He longs to use every single one of you. Heavenly Father, um, I beg you that we would not be a group of people that let this moment pass. And I just want to pause right now. Every single one of us, clear your head, stop thinking about whatever like, might be circling around in your head right now, where you're going to go eat after this, what your plans are this afternoon. Really take this moment in for a second. And ask the Holy Spirit, what are you trying to say to me right now? Where have you been possibly ignoring him? Where has he, he been prompting you? Where has he been nudging you and you or maybe the people in your life have been telling you that's crazy, don't do it. But, but he just keeps bringing it up. Remember, Mordecai asked Esther, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Who knows if maybe you were placed in that specific class for just such a time as this? Who knows if you were maybe given a promotion for just such a time as this? Who knows if God brought you to this church this morning for just such a time as this? Who knows if God literally gave you a house that you live in, live on the street that you live on with the neighbors that you have for just such a time as this? Heavenly Father, Whatever it is, and I have no idea what it is that you're asking from person to person, but I pray that this would be a church community that isn't marked by their listening and their mm-hmm's and their amens, but they are a group of people that are marked by their obedience. That when you nudge, when you prompt, that we take those leaps because we know that you are a God that can be trusted, that you have our best interest in mind. And when we doubt that, I pray that we would look no further than the cross. We have that proof, we have that evidence sitting right in front of us of how much you love us, of how much you adore us, how much you really do want what is best for us. God, it's incredible that you would long to use any of us. You don't need us, but you want to use us. Thank you for allowing any of us to play a part in your redemptive plan for this world. So in your name we pray, amen. Uh, the band's going to sing a song, and I invite you guys to sing it with them. Um, it's called Rain Above It All. Again, this, this God whose hands can't be forced and his will can't be stopped, it's not a negative thing, it's a good thing. That This God who is so worthy of our praise, who is so worthy of our adoration, who really does reign above all of it, whatever circumstances you're experiencing, whatever hardships might be meeting you right now, and the good, the bad, the ugly, he meets all of us right there in all of it, and he reigns above it all. Thanks for listening. We hope you were both challenged and encouraged today. For everything you want to know about Three Creeks Church, visit threecreekschurch.com.